Hey, and welcome to this episode of LDS Mission Cast. I'm your host, Kelsey Edwards, and we've got some really exciting stuff for you guys. Our first guest is Daniel Peterson. He's a longtime BYU professor of Islamic studies. And after that, we'll hear from Sean Rapier from Latter-day Lives, who's interviewing our very own host, Nick Galetti. And guys, this is a great opportunity to learn more about him and his mission experiences. So be sure to give that a listen. And to finish off, we're going to have our Book of Mormon challenge, which is so exciting. So stay tuned for that. Our guest on this episode of the LDS Mission Cast is Dan Peterson, who is a, I would say, a special guest because he is a unique person in the church in the sense that uh, you are a professor of Islamic studies mm-hmm. and probably the foremost individual on the Islamic traditions, but within the Mormon church. Would that be fair to say? Well, it's not a very big club, so yeah, <laughs> I'm certainly in that group. You're okay with that? <laughs> yeah. So, but you, you've been teaching it for years, 30 plus years, right? Uh, yeah, I came to BYU. It's hard to believe I'm this old. I never imagined it, <laughs> but I came to BYU in the fall of 85 and I've been there. So now for what, about 33 years, yeah, something like that. That's incredible. You do come and, and bring to the table a very, uh, a unique perspective that could help p- people that are preparing to serve missions, even those that are just encountering those of the Islamic traditions in their everyday life. We don't obviously make a study of other religions as intensely as we do our own, but there is some value in in coming to know this religion, or at least some of their traditions and backgrounds. It is, is it the largest religion in the world or second largest? It, it probably isn't the largest. I think Christianity is still marginally ahead okay. of it, but Islam is growing very rapidly, yeah, especially in areas of Africa and so on and so forth. And so it's, uh, but it's right up there with Christianity and as one of the world's largest religions. And I would say we're, the church is sending a lot more missionaries to Africa and, yes. and we're seeing a lot of work there. So this is actually relevant to those that are serving in Africa or yeah. other parts of the world. So what if you were to just walk up to someone and, and have your first introduction to them, what would be kind of the first thing that a Mormon would need to know about that, about that person? If the, if the person is a Muslim. Yes. Um, you know, I think the basic things that we have to know about Islam are that Islam is, A, not a completely foreign religion. It's, it's a cousin religion to Judaism and Christianity. So it shares a lot with, uh, with Judaism and Christianity, including a, a reverence for Abraham, Moses, and so on, for, for the prophets of the Old Testament and for Jesus. Islam and, and Christianity go hand in hand in that regard in a way. The, the Islamic view of Jesus, though, is different than the Christian view. It's the, this is the fundamental difference between a Christian and a non-Christian religion. Muslims believe Jesus to have been a prophet. They believe him to have been born of a virgin, to have been sinless, but they do not believe him to be the divine son of God. He's not divine. He, that's an interesting disconnect because he said he was. So how, right. how do they navigate that typically? They feel uh, that the scriptures that Christians have contain a lot of truth, but they've been corrupted. And that's one of those areas of corruption. Okay. Uh, that Jesus, they say, never claimed to be divine. But he does have a special relationship uh, with God in the sense that he's the only human being who is the son of a mother but not of a father. He's the Ibn Maryam, the son of Mary, but not the son of Joseph, nor the son of God. Okay. Now, is there a particular language base for the religion? 
Yeah, the the founding prophet of the religion was Muhammad, who was born in what is today Saudi Arabia. And he he spoke Arabic. Uh, the Quran, the sacred book of Islam, which was revealed through him, is in Arabic. So Arabic is the, the privileged, the sacred language of, of the Islamic religion. Although the majority of the world's Muslims, a lot of people in the West don't even understand this, don't recognize this, but the majority of the world's Muslims are not Arabs. Okay. And many of them don't speak Arabic particularly well, or if at all. But the language of the scripture is always Arabic. That is, even in a, in a mosque in Indonesia or in Detroit or in Frankfurt, uh, they will read the Quran first in Arabic and then read a translation of it. Would that be kind of similar to how the Catholics use Latin or something like in that? In a way, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's, it's a language that binds Muslims the world wide. Okay. Um, and they really do believe that, uh, that the Quran in Arabic is the word of God. In translation, it's not. It is, um, it's a paraphrase of the word of God. But God spoke Arabic to Muhammad okay. or through Muhammad. Mormons obviously have a concept of a prophetic individual that, through which scripture comes forward. In what ways would Muhammad be different than, say, Joseph Smith? Are, are there differences that are easy? In some ways, they're comparable. Um, most Muslims will teach you that, uh, that Muhammad was infallible. I don't think we hold that of Joseph Smith or any no. of his successors. So uh, that would be one difference. Although, to be honest, I'm not sure that Muhammad ever claimed that himself. Okay. He did not claim either to be a savior or anything like that. He's just, he's simply a prophet, a spokesman for God. He didn't even claim to perform miracles. He said the only miracle that he could claim was the revelation of the Quran, which came through him over a period of about 22 years. Mm. And so, you know, in some ways, Joseph Smith and Muhammad would be comparable. They're seen as opening, a, a, in a sense, a new dispensation. Muslims don't use that term, but it, it fits. And the Muslim view of history is rather like the Latter-day Saint view, which is that there have been successive revelations and then apostasies. Things have gotten gummed up. Things have gone off the rails. And so God has to call a prophet to restore his original truth. And in the case of Muhammad, according to Islam, this is the final revelation the last time this is going to be done, it will be never taken from the earth again and so on. So again, that sort of echoes a Mormon yeah. idea. The, the difference is, I'll, I'll tell you a story to illustrate one thing you should not do when you first meet a Muslim. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, some would take it more easily than, than this fellow did. I remember in Switzerland on my mission, I tracked it out a fellow uh, in Zurich who was a Pakistani banker. And when he found out we were Mormons, he was thrilled. He'd heard about us. He really wanted to talk to us. Mm. That was not a reaction we got very often in Even Switzerland. Today, yeah. So yeah, I was excited. So he said, oh, come in. I want to talk to you. I want to ask you questions. Well, I'm thinking to myself, you know, arrogant young probably 20 at that point. I was thinking, oh, what a lucky guy he is because I actually know something about Islam. I didn't know very much. Got I mean, it. Almost nothing. But I thought, well, what common ground can we emphasize? I thought, post-biblical prophecy, you know, okay. a, a prophet after the close of the Bible. So I launched into that. I said, we believe in a modern prophet, Joseph Smith. And he said, you mean uh, after Muhammad? Mm. And I said, yes. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. And he was very polite about it. But there are no prophets after Muhammad. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. We hadn't even sat down. Oh, you know, that and was I think quick. That was the single worst opening line I could possibly have come up with. Total failure of missionary inspiration. Now, maybe it was all right because it, we would have gotten to it anyway eventually sure. and this saved time. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I'm not sure that every Muslim would react so absolutely that way. They might just be curious and say, well, tell me about it and so on. But this particular fellow was so strict on that that even though he was very nice, he just said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm 
Going to have to ask you to leave my apartment. Well, that brings up an interesting point, though, because when we're talking about knowing about Islam, that doesn't necessarily mean that we always have to make a point-for-point comparison of how they're similar. Right. And that can be a caution for a lot of religions, not just Islam, but there are some, there's more similarities than maybe most Latter-day Saints would realize. So would you say that perhaps a way of going into it is to make sure that we understand they're actually very similar claims. We just place them in different yeah, people. Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think that's very true. If you mention to a Muslim, Adam, Abraham, Moses, David. They're um, on board. They're on board. They believe in all of those people. They believe in Jesus as a prophet. Uh, he spoke for God, that he represented God and so on. So we have a lot of common ground. And, and there are other areas of common ground that I would point to where it seems to me that Latter-day Saints differ from a lot of Christians in putting more emphasis on right behavior rather than orthodoxy and theology. I don't want to push that too far. It's not like we don't have beliefs sure. that we need to uh, accept and so on. But, you know, when you go in for a temple recommend, they ask you what you do, what you don't do, right. so on and so forth. Not, okay, we're going to ask you to explain the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We have a panel of theologians here who will test you on that. You know, and we don't we do not do that. Sure. But but that's been the, the focus in Christianity. Islam and Judaism and Mormonism are more alike in the sense that we pay more attention to what you might call orthopraxy, right, right behavior, than in a sense to orthodoxy. We don't have theologians. We have historians because God reveals himself somehow in the way prophets act, the things they do and say, the way we behave, the way the church manifests itself. Uh, we don't have theologians who spend a lot of time doing Greek philosophy and splitting hairs over the nature of angels or, or something like that. Sure. And so that's that's one area of commonality. One, one distinct area of difference that a lot of Latter-day Saints have a hard time getting their heads around is that there is no Muslim church. I've had people you, oh, ask like me. like a formal organization. Yeah. Yeah, I've had people ask me, well, you know, if Osama bin Laden was so bad, why didn't they excommunicate him? (laughs) Well, because there's no communion to excommunicate him from. Islam is not organized. You know, if you go into a town and you say, who's the head Mormon in this town? It's pretty easy to figure it out. It's the branch president or the bishop or the stake president or maybe the area president or something. But there's a clear chain of command. Same thing for the Catholics. It's the priest or the bishop or the archbishop. If you went into town and asked, who's the head Protestant in this town? That wouldn't the, work. Yeah, it, the question's meaningless. Well, there's Reverend Billy Bob, there's Pastor So-and-so, there's, you know, there's this guy at the Anglican or Episcopalian church, but they don't see each other as, you know, that's my boss, I'm subservient to him. And that's the way Islam is, that um, one mosque is not necessarily subservient to another mosque. There's no, no Islamic pope or president or anything like that. But so. there are traditions that feel as if there is an organization yeah. guiding and maintaining those. What it is is there a set of classical books, okay? Really, and and all of the the imams, the so-called ulama, they're called in Arabic, which literally means the knowers, the ones who know. Okay, and the, what they know is the books. And so it gives a great deal of uniformity to Islam. It's actually in some ways more unified than Christianity, but in, in many ways, I would say. But it doesn't have that organization. It's, the unity is formed because all the leaders have been formed by reading the same books. A certain sort of canonical list, the Quran being the first, but then books of traditions about the prophet and, and books of law based on, on the prophet's precedents. And they've all read those. And, uh, and so there's a great deal of uniformity across the Islamic world, but not organization in the sense that Mormons, you know, we're really organized. Right. We just don't see how it works, but it does work. 
I'm curious then to, this question may seem a little off and I hope it doesn't come across as insensitive, but it does feel sometimes, because I, I went to Istanbul and there were mosques on every corner, kind of like people joke about churches here right. in Utah, but it does feel like there has to be someone that's guiding this yeah. and, and organizing it. And Muhammad was the guy in his time, but uh, nothing ever came of that afterwards. There was no succession, and nor did they see a need for it. Well, there was. I mean, there, there was the institution of the so-called caliphate, the khalifa in Arabic, or khilafa, the caliphate, the, who was the successor of the prophet. But that's been, well, powerless for centuries and was formally abolished almost 100 years ago. Okay. People were really upset about it in the 1920s when Ataturk in Turkey abolished the caliphate. And then a lot of people realized, you know what? It actually doesn't make any difference at all because he hasn't had any power for at least 500 or 1,000 years. Okay. So big deal. He was kind of a symbolic head of the community, but but nobody actually went to him for anything. The mosques are typically built in Muslim countries by, by the governments okay, or by wealthy people. Sometimes I think in the Middle Ages, you get the impression that it's a wealthy guy at the end of a life that was maybe a little dicey. He now realizes he's about to meet God. Buying his way. Yeah. Time to, uh, time to build a mosque, a few <laughs> acts of piety. A lot of Christian churches were built for sure. similar reasons. Um, and then in other countries in the U.S., Muslims are having to figure out new ways of organizing, sort of the way Protestants have, you know, that you come together and say, we're Muslims, we'd like to build a mosque, let's take up a collection among ourselves and build it. Okay. But it's not, it's not a directive from Mecca to build that mosque. It's just the local Muslims who want a place to pray. Well, and that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. You bring up the Mecca. And so what, what exactly is that? People use that term as the center of yeah. whatever thing that they're referring to, but there's actually a Mecca. Yes. And it is part of this faith tradition. Yeah. Mecca is the town where Muhammad was born and, uh, and became at a certain point in his ministry the, the sacred center of the Islamic world. There's a shrine in the center of Mecca called the Kaaba, which people, a lot of people have seen pictures of it, big black cube. Yeah. It's actually brick and stone, but it's covered with a black cloth called the Kiswat, so it looks like a black cube. And a particular corner of that is the center, the absolute center of the Islamic universe. There's a stone in one corner toward, toward which they pray. They're not praying to the stone. It's like uh, it's, through it? Uh, yeah, in a way, it's, it's a symbolic representation, uh, okay. but not an idol. They would never say that, that you worship the stone. Uh, I suppose if you asked a lot of Muslims, why do you do this? They'd say, well, I know not, save the Lord hath commanded. I mean, right. But we're not worshiping the rock. Um, but, but they're all praying toward it, uh, at certain times of the day, five times daily. So that, um, you know, a lot of people think Muslims pray to the east. Well, they do if they're west of Mecca. But so if they were east of Mecca, they'd be praying to the west. Okay. North, they'd be praying toward the south. The interesting problem is what does a Muslim astronaut do <laughs> you know, while, <laughs> while orbiting the earth? Stand on his uh, head, baby. There are actually rulings on this. That oh, you, really? Yeah, you pray toward a line that runs from the earth's center through Mecca out into space. Oh. And when at the time you start the prayer, you pray toward that. And of course, you're moving at thousands of miles an hour, but you don't keep moving. You yeah. just 
start and end your prayer in the same <laughs> position. But they had to rule on that when some Saudi astronauts went up. Oh, nice. <laughs> so that that brings up another question. There's these five prayers during the day. Yeah. Are they set? Yes. And it reminds me of a story, uh, an incident that happened in when I was living in Egypt. We had a, a member of our branch there who was kind of a high-up executive in a company there, and he had a driver, a Muslim driver. And they got along really well. And one day that he's, he told me the story later that evening, I think. His driver said, well, you know, it's time for prayer, and when we've got a little extra time. Would you mind terribly if, if we put in by the mosque and I could do my prayers? And Friday noon, I think it was. And the Mormon guy said, sure, you know, not a, not a problem. I've got stuff. I'll sit out here in the car and read. And But he said, would you say a prayer for me? And he said the fellow looked at him like, what? What, what are you talking about? And um, and so my friend asked me, does that mean that they would never pray for a non-Muslim or that I'm unworthy or something? I said, no, no, no. You have to understand the prayers he's doing, in a way I don't even like using the word prayer. They are prayers, but they're liturgy. They're, they're formal, set prayers. You recite certain things. You bow a certain number of times. They're not spontaneous. He's not praying for himself necessarily either during those five daily prayers. Now, they have another kind of prayer. That's called salat. They have another kind of prayer called dua, which you can do any time of the day. You don't have to kneel. And that can be for, you know, gee, my son's in trouble. Help him. Mm. Or I want to have a baby. Or, you know, I'm feeling sick. Can you help me get past it? Or The petitionary or, prayers. Yeah, petitionary prayer. And it's called sometimes in English invocation. Uh, and, and that's one where you could pray for anybody you want, including a non-Muslim. No problem with praying for a non-Muslim. It's just that, you know, the, the, the Muslim guy in this story just wasn't understanding even what the what the, the Mormon was asking. Yeah. Not understanding how little he knew about Muslim sure. prayer. That, that this is more like going, well, would you, would you recite mass for me? Right. Well, no, I, I can't. That's not what know? it is. It's not what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So what are those five times during the day? Well, they pray in the morning, they pray at noon, the afternoon, in the evening, and at night. Is and, it a set time? Or? Uh, yes. Okay. And, but you have some flexibility. If you're in a car or something, then you can do it a little bit before, a little bit after. And then if you miss the prayer altogether, if you're just in some situation where you can't, then you can make up that number of prayers at some other time. The only times you cannot pray, they don't allow you to pray strictly under Islamic law, you may not pray exactly at sunrise rise or exactly at noon or exactly at sunset. And the only basis I can think of for this is they don't want it ever to be thought that they're worshiping the sun Okay. at the sunrise, the sunset, or, or meridian. So you can pray a minute afterwards hmm. or a minute before, but you shouldn't pray right at those times. When we talk about it, the faiths, there's always the question of soteriology, the basis of salvation that they yeah. carry. What's salvation? Salvation is not so very different in Islam from a basic Christian view. There's heaven and hell. There are actually darajat or degrees in heaven. Some people will be closer to God than others. And okay. so it's kind of interesting from a Mormon point of view. Uh, there is a literal physical resurrection. We will be brought before God and judged mm. and then told which destination is ours. They believe that God will save us according to our works. It's, and yet it's not a salvation by grace sort of scheme. The idea is that if, if you try to be righteous, God will reward you a thousand times more than your works deserve. But if you are evil, he'll get, give you what your works deserve, <laughs> and, uh, and that will be really miserable. Although a lot of people have talked about Islam as teaching a God of justice. 
And you could certainly argue that. Every chapter of the Quran except one, nobody knows why it doesn't, but every every chapter of the Quran except one begins with, in the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of emphasis on his grace, his mercy, that uh, if you try to, to live according to the rules, then you will be you'll be given paradise. Well, and, what what's God? Who is God in that? Is, yeah. is he embodied? You know, uh, my feeling is that the earliest Islamic view of God was that he was embodied. Okay. Uh, if you read the Quran, if you read the Quran without any preconceived notions, you'd read about his hands, his eyes, his feet, his throne. He leaves his throne and comes down to earth. He leaves the earth and goes back up to his throne. Uh, this all suggests... Uh, Motion, location, anthropomorphism. There are a lot of early stories in Islam that suggest that he's in the form of a human being, some of them very, very early. And then I think you can see the fight that breaks out in Islam over the next Mm. few centuries, probably under the influence of, by then, from a Latter-day Saint point of view, apostate Christians and Greek philosophy, where they decide, oh, no, 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 this can't be right. This has to be metaphorical. So, for example, one of my favorite passages in one of the great books of traditions you have at one point the prophet is asked will we ever see god and it's at sunset out in the desert there's a huge orange globe of a sun you know going below the horizon and muhammad says in this report of him as clearly as you see that sun setting over there uh, you will see god when you stand before him for judgment but right after that there's another story attributed to one of his wives who says if anyone tells you that my husband ever said that you would ever see God, that person is a liar. Nice. And I think, okay, these cannot both be true. Right. <laughs> you know, they may both be bogus reports, but at least one of them has to be. And to me, those are those are signs of a battle that was going on in the community over the first, say, three or four hundred years after the prophet. Okay. But I would argue that the earliest view of God in Islam I, was that God was embodied, and I think Muhammad thought he saw God as his first revelatory experience. Interesting. So, and, and it's still there in the traditions. They just don't quite know what to do with it. Is there, I want to say, a best approach? Is it to let them talk first? Yeah. I, you know, I think one advantage that Latter-day Saints have in, in talking with Muslims, or for that matter, people from other faiths, we are, we are not so liberal that everything is equally true. But we're not so conservative as some of our evangelical friends are, for example, that anything outside of evangelicalism is false and of the devil. So it's not so, so exclusive. Yeah. So we can, we can say, you know what? We wouldn't be surprised if Muhammad received inspiration, if he received guidance from God. You know, the, there are people out there beyond our community who receive truth and inspiration, genuine divine inspiration. That allows us to be a lot more positive about Islam and about the Quran, about Muhammad, than some very conservative Christians can be. On the other hand, as I say, we're not so liberal. I have some liberal theologian friends who say, oh, yeah, Muhammad was a prophet. But then when you finally figure out what they mean by it, it's a title they'd give to almost anybody. Gotcha. You have a good idea, you're a prophet. And Muslims don't appreciate that either because they say, well, you know, you've you've granted that he was a prophet, but you've so devalued the word that it's really not a compliment. Right. I was in a gathering with a bunch of quite liberal theologians and for some reason thought it would, somebody thought it would be a great idea to have the most liberal of all of them. I won't name him, but he was quite famous, taught at Harvard Divinity School. And he gave a lecture uh, in Austria where we were meeting. It was a trilogue, Muslims, Christians, and Jews, quite a number of years ago, 93, I think. And he gave a talk that was so unbelieving 
as a Christian theologian, hmm. that they'd invited a lot of Muslims thinking they would love his message. And as soon as he began to speak, I thought, you had to be insane to think they'd like this. <laughs> they hated it hmm. because they could see that he didn't believe in Christian prophets either. And he certainly didn't believe that Muhammad received revelation. And so by the end of it, they were all terribly offended. It was not Muslim scholars. They might have taken it better, but they'd invited the local community there in this sure. town in Austria to come and hear it. And, uh, and they were not pleased at what they heard. <laughs> so as far as, you know, we're basically saying best practice is give them some time to explain yeah. where they're coming from. And where be they appreciative. Believe. Absolutely. We don't have to attack them. Right. And the other side of it, though, is missionaries and, well, most members of the church will end a discussion about our faith with the invitation to pray about it and find yeah. out if it's true. Yeah. Do Muslims basically say, yeah, I'll pray about it, that seems natural to them, or is that not one of their petitionary it, prayers? It's not one of the things they typically do. Okay. And so, you know, they might be willing to do it. We don't, we don't have an overt program to missionize among Muslims. Sure. You know? But obviously, you run into Muslims from time to time, and the church's general attitude is we won't seek them out. We don't have a campaign to try to specifically reach Muslims. But if they would like to talk with us, we'll talk. Mm -hmm. Now, we're even careful there. I mean, I remember one general authority, now emeritus, many years ago who told me, you know, we realize that we may sometimes create martyrs. But we don't want to, and and we don't want to offend people. Yeah. So we'll be very, very careful. But if people ask, we're we're more than willing to talk about it. And I would just say, you know, look, one of the good things is we can, as you're familiar with this quote that's been used many times from George Albert Smith and, and others, uh, that we're not trying to take away any truth that they have. They have a great deal of truth. We just want to add the things that we have. Yeah, and, President uh, Hinckley talked about yeah, that too. yeah. And so we don't have to tell them, jettison Muhammad, you have to learn to hate him. I see some evangelical works trying to reach Muslims that basically say, look, you have to understand and recognize Muhammad was a false prophet, an agent of the devil, and so on. That's not a very good approach because <laughs> respect for Muhammad is bred in the bone for Muslims. They are very upset whenever you badmouth him, attack him, mock him, so on. And the nice thing is Latter-day Saints don't have to do that. Right. We're under no obligation. In fact, the church offered a, a statement back in 1978. The First Presidency put it out under President Kimball, paying tribute to Muhammad and several others as having received a portion of God's light. Yeah. A very positive view toward him and, and other religious leaders. Is there anything that you would say also that's maybe a myth that we should debunk and get rid of that, that might also hinder communication? Well, I hear a lot of things now, especially in the politically charged environment oh, yeah. that we're in. You know, people are concerned that all Muslims are trying to kill us and so on. And, you know, I'm, I'm not Pollyanna. I, I don't have <laughs> rose-colored glasses on. I, I recognize there are crazies out there. There are fanatics, uh, ISIS or Daesh, you know, and, and groups like that that are just evil, nihilistic thugs. But the vast majority of Muslims are not like that. And and I have people call me every once in a while and they want to know, well, there's a mosque being built in my neighborhood in California. Should I be concerned? And my answer is no. You know, I mean, it's possible that the imam of the new mosque will be a fire-breathing loon, but the odds are against it. And I say the only thing you should be concerned about is that you might miss the open house invitation. There you go. They're like Mormons. They'll put on an open house. They'll have food. You'll have a great time. Be sure you go. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be an asset to your community, probably not a, not a detriment. Um, so my feeling is get over this notion that they're scary 
that it's foreign. I mean, people think that about us too. Sure. And and one of the best things that we can do sometimes is just to get people into one of our chapels or into one of our meeting houses and they realize, oh, this isn't dark and evil, you know? Yeah. It's just an ordinary place and these are nice people. Uh, you find that with most Muslims too. And the, the things that create the misunderstandings or distance, you know, you can dehumanize people you don't know. Yes. But if you if you get to know them, there will, you know, obviously be some crazies and some fanatics and so on. But the vast majority know. And, and if they're in your PTA or in your neighborhood or working in your office, get to know them. Yeah. Uh, invite them over to dinner. They'll probably reciprocate and you'll get some really good food again. <laughs> you know? Love that food. Yeah. Oh, they have, they have some great stuff. <laughs> Excellent. There's so, probably so much more we could go over, but this has been a really good primer to kind of get in some other things. Is there anything else that maybe we need to hit on before we close up? I would just say that, that in a lot of areas, I think we can actually make common cause with Muslims, even if they don't convert. We see things, many things, in similar ways. They're concerned about building good communities, you know, where it's safe and where the morality is high. And, the, and their view may be a little different than ours. But, but even, you know, you see women wearing the hijab or the head covering. It's not, it's not so radically different from what we sometimes think. They're talking about modesty. Just, you know, just being good people and, and not, uh, not selling out to the spirit of the age, which is oftentimes very foreign. If you listen to a lot of Muslims talk about what they don't like about the United States, when you hear that kind of talk, many things they love about the United States. Many of them are, are coming to the United States, but, but their complaints will be the same sorts of things you're going to hear often in general conference. Hmm. materialism, neglect of family, you know, focusing on the wrong things, having too little time for God, not thinking about what we're really here for. In other words, we're really on the same page on a lot of those sort of practical issues. Yeah. We can be friendly with them and, and make common cause on community issues and, you know, join together for charitable activities and things like that. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming in and sharing some of your expertise and some suggestions that I know just about everybody could probably use in dealing not just with those of the Islamic faith and traditions, but really any, to yeah. give, give time for them to, to explain where they're at and come to understand one another. Yeah, the rules really aren't so different for Muslims than they would be for Buddhists or whoever else it is that happens to be your neighbor or your office mate or, or you know, somebody you're working with in a community organization. Just yeah. get to know them. Listen. If you show them that respect, they're more inclined to listen to you. If you come in just preaching, yes, uh, that may turn them right off, <laughs> as it would us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again for your time. Uh, do we have any kind of an online resource that we might be able to point some people to for further study? There have been some articles in the past in the Ensign, for example. Uh, articles by, well, James Toronto, for example, wrote a piece on Islam some quite a few years ago now. And I might say that, that there's going to be another article on Islam appearing in the Ensign fairly soon. Okay. Uh, that I hope will be okay. Is that yours? Yep. Awesome. <laughs> and, and I might add that it was... It was requested specifically by the First Presidency. They, they are really interested in the question of building better relationships with, with the Muslims. Excellent. Then that makes this even more important yeah. that we're having this conversation. All right. Well, thank you again. We'll put links to those sources if we can find them at the posting for this episode at ldsmissioncast.com. Thank you again, Dan Peterson, for coming in. Thank you for having me. When Daniel Peterson's article comes out in the Enzyme, we'll post a link to it on our social media and at ldsmissioncast.com, so you can go check that out.
It's Sean Rapier once again with the Latter-day Lives podcast, and this week I had the most exciting guest on the show. <laughs> it's actually the host of the LDS Mission Cast. We were talking about the launch of this podcast. Nick Galetti, your host, yeah. is my guest this week. So, Nick, you get to be kind of in a different role sitting on the other side That's of the table. Kind of huh? weird. Kind of strange, right? Yeah. So, Nick, what I want to know most, because I know you had a very spiritual and wonderful mission, I want to know if there was that one investigator, that one person you met on your mission that changed the way you looked at the gospel and why? The person that I'm going to bring up, I actually hope to have on as a guest Oh, awesome! at some point. So this will be kind of a tease for that. But I baptized a couple people on my mission. Baton Rouge, Louisiana is where I served. And the gospel was finding its roots. In fact, we were just, we dug the ground for the temple there while I was a missionary. Oh, awesome. And so I was in a city called Chalmette, which is just mm. east of New Orleans. Which is a very Louisiana-named city. Yeah, yeah, it is. But Chalmette had some wonderful people, probably my favorite area in my mission. I know you're not supposed to say that, but it, it probably was. I think it's okay to say that. We all have them. Yeah. Well, I love New Orleans. It's a wonderful city, and it doesn't always deserve the reputation that it has, but mm. um, it, it was just before Christmas, and our ward mission leader in the ward said, why don't we do something special for Christmas? And we said, you know, we've got a lot of media referrals, and they don't do those very much anymore, I don't think, but where they have the the TV ads oh, yeah. or the radio ads or something where people would call for a video or a Book of Mormon or something like that. Sure. And the missionaries would go deliver it and try and teach them a discussion. Yeah. Well, we had a stack of referrals that we had passed by or whatever, and we'd never been able to teach them. So what ended up happening was we decided that we were going to take little candy canes. Mm. This is so cheesy, right? It's great. We took little candy canes and we would t- tie a little note that said... Something, some kind of message of where the missionaries, we stopped by because you had reached out to us at some point, and we'd love to come by and share a Christmas message with you. Here's our phone number. It's well before email. So here's our cool. phone number. Uh, and, and we just just dropped them all off on their, on their doorknob, and we left. We didn't think anything of it. And we got a phone call a day or two later from a woman, Mary Manessas, and that that name clicked because mm. we'd gone through these referrals and we're like, oh yeah, I remember that. Sure. And she called up and she said, actually, I'm a member of the church. I haven't been going to church a lot lately, but I saw the ad on the TV and I would love to have the missionaries come by. Awesome. So she, but then she said to talk to my husband. And so we're like, okay. So we were very happy that these candy canes actually had some <laughs> impact. And so we went over to their house, and because she had been a member, she had her own set of scriptures. So it wasn't like we really needed to bring a Book of Mormon, per se. In fact, her father, who was active, had given her husband, Todd, uh, his an old set of his scriptures. So he had a Book of Mormon, a Doctrine and Covenants, a Pearl of Great Price. <laughs> awesome. And so we walked into this going, well, this is unusual. We don't normally have this. And we taught Todd the first discussion, which... Back then, we did the discussions. Sure, the six discussions. And so if you you remember, at the end of the first discussion, you commit them to read certain passages from the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And then pray about it. Moroni's challenge. And we said, we'll come back in a week after you've had a chance to do that, and we'll see where we go from there. And when we came back, we usually... the, the. 
the usual missionary thing was we went back and we said, so did you get a chance to read and pray about it? And most people said, no, I got yeah, too busy, didn't to have it. it. I, know, tried, some, I read a little bit. Yeah, some him and Han. But he said, yes, I, I read the scriptures that you gave me, and then I started reading from the beginning on, on his own pace. And I took the time to pray about it, and I know it's true, and I want to be baptized. <laughs> and we were like, what? That happens? Like, oh, my. The golden investigator experience actually happened Incredible. for us. It was interesting because we were kind of taken back by that. Not, It wasn't something we really practiced or planned for, to have someone actually say without any hesitation that they wanted to be baptized. We didn't even have to ask him. So we went in and, and taught him the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, and we then had the baptism. Mm. And it was one of those experiences for me that the reason that it changed for me, and this is going to sound a little strange, but he wasn't my first baptism on my mission. Other people had been baptized in that area. Mm. But for whatever reason, when Todd Manessas was baptized, something happened in my own mind, in my own heart, that said, that didn't happen because of you, mm. right? Yeah. So it didn't happen because you were so fantastic in your first discussion and because of your candy canes. It, that's not why this happened. It happened because his heart had been prepared and the Spirit witnessed to him that the gospel was true, independent of anything that I said or did. And for me, that was a, a reminder that this is God's work. Yeah. That who I am as a missionary was important. I had to come out. And for whatever reason, I was in the right place at the right time or whatever. And we've stayed good friends to this day. In fact, my wife Heidi went to New Orleans on a job for our sound business. And she finally got to meet them after 20 years since he had been baptized. How wonderful. And I had visited him uh, earlier this year and made sure that I stayed in the area to go to church with him. So it had been 20 years since he'd been baptized, about, and I hadn't seen him since I left the mission field in 99. And so in 2017, August, muggy, hot, sweaty August, we showed up and I went to fast and testimony meeting with my convert. Incredible. and, And we both bore testimony of the gospel and... He jokingly blamed me for getting him in the church. <laughs> but it was such a sweet reunion. But it also reminded me it's still God's work. Yeah. And he's still active because the church is still true and God still lives. And so he's always a reminder to me that the Lord's hand is guiding this work. I think it's hard for 19 and 20 year olds to realize that the world doesn't revolve around us. And it's one of the great (laughs) things that a mission does. Yeah, absolutely. Is it it shows you how to be a a tool in the hand of God, but it also shows you that he is running things and he directs things and what what an honor it is to be that tool in his hands. Yeah. Nick, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on my own podcast. And we now return (laughs) you to your host, Nick Galetti. Thank Sean Rapier for his interview of me and for taking that time. It's kind of an unusual position for me, but, uh, well, there it is. 
So here now is our Book of Mormon Challenge segment. Last week, on last week's episode, I should say, I started things off by being the first to do a Book of Mormon Challenge for the LDS Mission Cast, and I wanted to report on how it went. So I had decided that the best thing that I should do, and it ends up being kind of fitting and proper considering our intro to Islam kind of theme that we've got going here, I have a neighbor who is from Iraq, and his wife took the missionary lessons for a little bit and was going along quite well in those missionary discussions. He had been supportive of her, but had not shown interest himself in taking the missionary lessons. And so I decided that it was my time to invite him to at least read the Book of Mormon. And he speaks English and reads English, but he's certainly much stronger in Arabic. And so I went to the distribution center and picked up a copy of the Book of Mormon in Arabic. And so I went next door and gave my neighbor a copy of the Book of Mormon. We'll see what happens from there, but you'll see pictures. If you've never seen an Arabic Book of Mormon, there's pictures of it uh, at ldsmissioncast.com. We have a special page just put up for the Book of Mormon Challenge. It's uh, there on our webpage, and we'll put a link to it at the posting for this episode. But uh, we're going to keep a list of all the people that we then challenge and where they live in the world and so on. And my picture of me holding the Book of Mormon I handed out is is up there, and now I get to issue a challenge to someone else, and I'm going to go ahead and challenge my co-host, Kelsey Edwards, to pick up a copy of the Book of Mormon, whatever language, and find someone to hand that Book of Mormon to, and then to issue the challenge to someone else, and we'll keep it going. So stay tuned for follow-ups on how the Book of Mormon challenge is going, and just in case you're curious... You don't have to wait until you're challenged to hand out a Book of Mormon. So please take the time to find or pray about someone who might be ready to hear the gospel message as brought forward through the Book of Mormon. Thank you so much for listening. Check in every week with us because we have some awesome interviews coming your way. And also be sure to like us on Facebook so you can follow what's going on. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter and stay in touch and we'll see you soon.